dislike it at all. All the days of your life you will toil. Actually, has like the man flu. <laughs> if you know anything about the man flu, he's actually plagued with the man flu. That's true. Right, Caleb? <laughs> what is the man flu? Man flu is when you're sick, but then you're you're not sick, and then your kids are sick. Good. And then you're a baby because your kids are sick. <laughs> How are these? So he is or is not sick. He's, he's been he's been to be determined. Off, he's been on an obstacle all week, and okay. then well, this morning good. I guess Maggie. We were, we were going to have him over this <laughs> he, weekend. You're so much more Maggie. gracious than I am. <laughs> <laughs> Stay yeah. home with Maggie the next, this morning. The so Maggie is, we know, sick. According to Amy, Maggie is sick. <laughs> <laughs> we believe it. We, uh, I, I like he to give Joe a hard time about it because Amy gives him a hard time. <laughs> he, Whenever he feels bad, he's always like, oh, I feel like death. And, and Amy's like, you're a baby. <laughs> Suck it up. <laughs> Yeah, it's like, why is it that you're always dead? <laughs> sure. Okay. 
Who are you guys going to hold down the right side today, huh? Right. <laughs> Somebody's got to. I've got to get a cup of coffee. Oh, you morning. end up changing. Well, I just, I filled them in at 8 a.m. this morning. Don't Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good for you. Yours truly had a very productive morning. I got a lot done. At least one of us did. Yeah, at least one of us. It was one of those didn't mornings I got morning? up and huh? just like so you moved didn't have a productive morning either? No, I done. just drank <laughs> coffee and... Yeah, I had a very productive morning. Yeah, yeah. I, was able to get all of my I, I count it like once every four months. Is good. I guess I get like <laughs> by ten after eight. I guess I get to use that excuse pretty soon without, uh, you know, you know getting the kids. The Molomatic. Okay, so close. close enough. Ten minutes. Yeah. Ten minutes. Yeah. Yeah. No, because like for me, you say you're flying. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Ten minutes. You're like. Looking. Yeah. If I hit all the green lights, it, it, it's about 10. This yeah, was so a green light morning for We us. had a green light morning. We That's did not joyful. Joyful in the Lord. So we rejoice at green lights. Green light morning or a red light morning. There's no... Main Street in Willimantic is... It's a tough cookie. Sometimes yeah. it's like you hit every single red light. Especially speak. that one where you go left by the Valero. It like sits oh. red forever. Yeah. So Dave and his big truck when he's driving, like, because Willie Waste, they, they go the other way there. Yeah. The light turns red really fast. So yeah. as soon as it turns green, he just starts driving. Yeah. It's just like, okay, I've got to move. I've got 90,000 pounds. That's not... Not so easy. Okay. A, Morning, Carol. You gotta squeeze the lemon to like yeah. reset where you are, so yeah. that way that like you don't end up getting red, 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 red. Yeah. <laughs> um, that is good. Okay. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. All right, guys. Well, let's get started. You guys have a good week. Mm-hmm. Huh? Huh? Good week, Calvin. Amen. Had lost the wisdom teeth this week. Oh, <laughs> I know you guys lost all your wisdom, like did Ralph, Ralph, Brittany. and Brittany did. They yeah, ate between the two of them. So Ooh, that's yeah. a lot. Yeah. So yeah. All four. Ralph, Ralph literally was. <laughs> so here's the real question. I asked Caleb this already, but did Ralph have any like anesthesia overload? Where was he really goofy after? No, he was not. No. I had my camera ready, but he was not. Yeah. <laughs> he handled it very well. Yeah, I got mine removed when I was 16, and my mom said that I was hysterical afterwards. Yeah, And this was before YouTube was real big, so I was like, all these YouTube videos that come out, I feel like I missed an opportunity. Just saying. I'm like, man, I could have been a YouTube star. Speaking of YouTube stars, Roseanne gave me an update on her YouTube channel. She now has 45,000 subscribers. Okay? So... Roseanne, if you guys haven't met Roseanne yet, she does like quilting and stuff, and she has this channel. What's it called Rosie's Creations or something like that? Yeah. Um, it's really cool, and she's like very good at teaching. Yes. The the actual message I got was, as the president of my fan club, I wanted to let you know. They're <laughs> very well made videos. They are. I feel like I could do that when when I'm watching them. I'm like, wow, this is, do, like, is good. Time lapses. 
Yes. She does, yeah. Yeah. yeah she, very high quality video editing yeah. after she's done. Yeah. 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 Oh, man, it would just be great if she was walking down right now. And we're like, Roseanne! Roseanne! <laughs> so, speaking of YouTube, well, it's Netflix, but there's a, there's a docuseries called Pepsi Where's My Jet. Okay. Which is really, really fun. It's All right. It's a four part doc, docuseries about a guy in the 90s who tried to collect enough points to buy a Harrier jet that, oh, wow. that Pepsi falsely, adver- in my opinion, falsely advertised that you could win. Oh. You remember this? I Yeah. It's, it's, it's really fun. Yeah, I've heard about it's, that. And, and it takes you back into the 90s. Like, it's that just, sounds fun. It's really, I highly recommend it mm. to anyone who wants to. What's it called again? Pepsi, where's my jet? Pepsi, where's my jet? Okay. Make sure you add that. We're putting that into the audio recording for this morning. Pepsi, where is my jet? Yes. In light of the Ninevites, <laughs> we will continue to <laughs> All right. Well, let me pray for us, and then I'll shift gears so that we can actually get started, because that would probably be beneficial. <laughs> Lord God, we thank you for... Today, we thank you for your word. We thank you so much for what we have learned in this time together. I pray as we're going through Jonah and Micah today, God, that you would show us the great commission that you've laid out before us to to make disciples, to share the good news of who you are. God, I pray also that you would help us to see within our own hearts our pride and how our pride keeps us from you and our, our mistrust of who you are and what you're doing um, really comes down to the nature of our sin. And, and so, God, we pray that you would be gracious in this time. As we learn more about following you, would we be obedient in doing so? In Jesus' name, amen. So I hope you guys are enjoying our time in the Minor Prophets as we are cruising through. You know, I feel like this is one of those times where we just start to take a lot of material and we're, we're just moving along at light speed. So, uh, I, I hope especially that as you're going through your readings week to week, that you are enjoying your readings, you're slowing down. And one of the things that I, I think God was teaching me this week in my own Bible reading was how important it is to slow down as we're reading the scripture. You know, guys, it's, it's essential that when we're reading the Bible week to week, that we remember what the Bible is. It's God's word. And that God is speaking to us. And that's a gracious gift that he has given us in being able to pick up our Bibles and read them. So as you're reading this week uh, through our schedule through Nahum, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah, I just want to encourage you. These are shorter books. And I, I would encourage you just really take the time. Think about the words that you are reading. Don't let your mind be distracted by all of the things that you have coming up in the morning or The next day, if you're reading in the evening or whatever is next in your schedule, really just block out that time to let God's word speak to you and speak to your mind and your heart uh, because he will indeed transform you through it. So um, God's word is good. So as we're continuing, today we're going to look at Jonah and Micah. And Jonah is a popular story that we often hear either preached or in kids' Bibles or even in our experience, whether we've been in the church for a long period of time or a short period of time, Jonah is a book of the Bible that a lot of people really love to come to. 
It's so popular and well-known, but it's often overlooked for its main theological point. And the other book that we're looking at, Micah, is a little-known prophet. Not many people spend a lot of time studying through the book of Micah. But in Micah, we hear a powerful message that adds considerably to our understanding of Old Testament hope. So within these two books, we actually get to see a, a, a contrast, right, where Jonah is maybe proclaiming this idea that Nineveh doesn't deserve hope. Wherein, as in Micah, Micah is highlighting how the Lord redeems and how we can have hope through his work. So even though Jonah comes before um, Micah in your Bibles, we're actually going to look at Micah first. And you might be asking the question, why? And that's because in so many ways, Jonah is a foil to Micah. The things that the Israelites are doing that Micah rails against are exactly the things that Jonah does. And that the pagan non-Israelites in Jonah repent of. Looking at the themes of Micah and then applying them to Jonah should help us to get beyond the familiarity of Jonah's story into his message of judgment and mercy. So that is judgment to Israel and mercy to her enemies. So one key theme that we see in both of these books, Micah and Jonah, is that God's salvation is for all peoples. Okay, I'm going to write that down for you. God's salvation... is for all people. It's not just for the Jews, but for all peoples. So before we get into Micah, let's do some work tracing through that theme through Scripture. Does anybody else know where in the Old Testament... We see the idea that God's salvation is for all people. Old Testament or new? Where do we get this idea? Where do we see God's salvation being for all people? I don't know if it's the first instance, but I think of Rahab. She was in Jericho. Oh, yeah. Okay, so Rahab? Naaman. Naaman, okay. He's Syria. Right. Right. He's from Syria. Um, so Rahab was, where again? Jericho. Jericho. Okay. Okay. Oh, yeah, one of the first, one of the first instances is that after the Israelites leave uh Egypt, the mixed multitude, goes with them. Okay. So what Exodus? Maybe just one or two more. Let's think of now to the New Testament as we shift here a bit. Romans 1, 16 and 17. Amen, yeah. You want to read that for us, Bo? Yeah. one of my favorite verses in the Bible. 
Even though you really shouldn't have favorite verses in the Bible. That's another story. <laughs> the whole Bible's good for you. <laughs> For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, other New Testament examples. Romans 1, 16 and 17 we've got. Galatians 3.15. I was saying Galatians. Galatians. Galatians 3 is actually a really interesting passage. Or, no, it's 4 with the contrast of... Um, oh, sorry. It's 3.28. Okay. Read that for us. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. That was 28 and 29. Amen. Galatians 3, 28, 29. Maybe one more. There's one that I think is like very essential to the New Testament that we, we haven't touched yet. Gospels, Acts. Anybody know what I'm what I'm suggesting. I mean, another good one is like Paul addressing the the, the pagans. Um, Acts 17. Yeah. Yeah. Like in Him we move and live and have our being. Yeah. He's going to judge the living and the dead. So I was thinking specifically of Acts 10. Uh, Peter and Cornelius. They, the time where the Lord goes and tells them to to visit with Cornelius and he's giving him the vision of all the unclean meat and he's saying kill eat destroy and Peter's like, I can't be unclean can't be unclean he says do not call what I have made unclean huge one uh maybe some lesser known ones if you want to go ahead flip your bible over to this we could spend a lot of time doing this but I'm just going to highlight one in particular uh let's go to Luke 1 Not as, uh, not as forward, but something that I think is an underlying message that could be easily looked over. Uh, Luke chapter 1, and this is verse 25 through 38, where Gabriel is predicting Jesus' birth to Mary. Specifically, he said, she said, or the angel says in verses 30 through 33, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. 
and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will rule or he'll, he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. So we see the connection to Israel, but specifically the bounds of the kingdom that are mentioned there. So his kingdom will have no end. So implicit. So let's dive back to Micah. So flip your Bibles over to Micah. Okay. There are tons of themes that we can see throughout the Old and the New Testament that God's salvation is going to be something that's not just limited to the Jewish nation, but something that he is particularly going to work within his people throughout the world. So within Micah, we're going to jump right into the historical timeline. Micah is the latest of the minor prophets that we've seen so far. Incidentally, if you haven't done so already, open up Micah, follow along. And if I'm not keeping or quoting the verses directly, I just want you to keep your finger on where we are within the Bible. We're going to try to move through this pretty quickly. So chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Micah, the Morishite, What he saw regarding Samaria and Jerusalem in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Okay, anybody remember the the time frame from First and Second Chronicles, First and Second Kings, uh, Judah, time of Judah, Hezekiah, good king, bad king. Remember, good king, good king, excellent. Right here in this first verse, we see the names of the kings who reigned during Micah's ministry. So he wasn't just under Hezekiah. He was also under Jotham and Ahaz. Uh, Any inclination of whether they were good kings, bad kings? I think they were bad. Bad kings. Yep. Bad kings. Um, Even though those are all Judean kings, Micah's prophecy isn't just limited to the the kingdom of Judah. It's a, a prophecy that... It concerns both the north and the south kingdoms. And lots goes on during Micah's time. Uh, there he is at the end of the 8th century BC. And as the book opens, Assyria is about to invade Israel. And by the end, this invasion is complete with a northern kingdom conquered, scattered, and completely annihilated. Okay, so the northern kingdom goes from being around to being not around, being annihilated. And the south is going to remain, but for a time, it looked like the Assyrians were going to do the same exact thing to the southern kingdom. Just to give you some bearings, this is also during the same time as the prophet Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah. So this invasion and dispersion of the northern tribes is, of course, a major theological conundrum. These are Yahweh's people. These are God's people who he has redeemed, who he has made within his image, that he has given us this covenantal promise that we've seen, right? In, in Genesis 12, what's the promise, guys? Remember the four parts to the promise of Genesis 12? People, presence, place, blessing. Amen. People, presence, Place, blessing, also curse. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. So people are presence, place, and blessing or curse. So again, as we remind ourselves of this major theme of the covenant that God made with Abraham, 
It gives us the storyline of the Old Testament. At this point, the northern kingdom being annihilated and the southern kingdom looking like this, it's giving us this inclination to think that the idea is that God's people are in danger of being annihilated. So if there's no people, who cares about the place? Who cares about the presence? Who cares about the blessing? It means that everybody is under curse, right? So if God's people are gone, this is bad news. And yet, in light of all of this, we, we're, we're asking ourselves the question, with this going on, is, is God casting these people off? These people that he has called his own. Is he not fulfilling the end of his covenant? Will he not see this through? Of course, the answer to those questions is no. We, we believe in the faithfulness of God that he will see these people through. But we must be reminded that where they are in this moment is not Yahweh's fault. It's theirs. It is theirs. Micah's message is that this judgment would, have ha- would not have happened if Israel had kept her end of the covenant. They were guilty of misconduct within the covenant. But it doesn't end there. That's not the end of the message, just their judgment. There's the, the continuing of the message, the highlight of the message, which is there's still hope if they repent. There's still hope if they repent. But since she won't, Micah's message flashes to her future. He predicts a day when a remnant of Israel will be saved through a future king in the line of David. So what's the point of Micah? The point of Micah, the main idea is this. God will judge all people, yet he will save a remnant through a future king. I think that's written down in your notebooks. Excellent. God will judge all people, yet he will save a remnant through a future king. So just in light of the the key theme between both of these books being that God's salvation is for all peoples, God's judgment is also for all peoples. Even though Israel is lost in this moment, hope is not lost. You can hear in that theme sentence that Yahweh is still committed to saving his people. The idea isn't just that he's going to judge them, that he will save a remnant through the king. So there's still hope. If these people repent, God will save them. But notice that it says that there's only a remnant that will repent. Now, as we've gone through the minor prophets, the the so-called book of the 12, we've pointed out where new themes emerge. And the theme of divorce that emerges first in Hosea of the day of the Lord starts in Joel. The theme of a remnant has been mentioned once already in Amos, and it's in Micah that it really comes into its own as a major theme of the prophetic books of the Old Testament. And it's going to continue to be a major theme through the rest of the books of the prophets. Basically, the remnant is those who will be, still be saved even after the fall of the north and the southern kingdoms. And that remnant is defined as those who repent. Those who repent. It's really as simple as that. 
The two nations are cast off, but those who will repent will make up the returning saved remnant. And this salvation will be accomplished by the great and final coming king. So it's important to see that right here in Micah, we're seeing another significant piece of foundation being laid for the New Testament. Does this not sound a lot like the message of the gospel in the New Testament? That God will save those who repent and have faith in Christ, right? Think of Mark 1, 16. What is Jesus's message in Mark 1, 16? Anybody know it off the top of your head? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Exactly. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Therefore, repent. Right? Repent and believe the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This message doesn't originate through Jesus' words in, in Mark 1. It's something that's been laid as a foundation. We see Micah starting at the 8th century before Christ. For 800 plus years, this idea of repentance being the entrance into the kingdom has existed. And you know, I'll make the argument that it's even further back than that mark of the 8th century BC. But it's essential that we see how important it is right here to what's going to be laid in the New Testament. Later on, Paul's going to write, not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Right? Romans 9 through 11. Not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. And it's going to be foreshadowed in Jonah that the remnant will eventually be expanded to include even those who are not ethnically descended from Israel. So when suddenly promises made to the ethnic people of Israel are fulfilled in the New Testament through the church, should we cry foul at that idea? Should we charge God with the idea of what's called replacement theology? I I don't think that's fair. Uh, No, the prophets have been preparing us, starting with Micah, that this idea that God's going to save a people through repentance, a remnant of people, has been established for some period of time. This isn't new news. When we look at the style of Micah, one quick note about Micah before we move into the text itself is that Micah is a masterful writer. He's got great rhetorical skills. He is excellent at using wordplay, powerful images, and sharp wit. I love reading through the book of Micah. So, Caleb, did you name Micah Micah because he was really witty? <laughs> <laughs> I think he may be starting to like fill in the shoes of his name. <laughs> so that's, that's good. <laughs> the Lord knew, right? <laughs> as we look through this book and we see these powerful images and this great rhetorical skill, um, as we're reading through it in English, unfortunately, we don't get to see a lot of this style come to life. While we get to see it Somewhat, we don't see the fullness of it like we do in the original languages. For example, there's a passage at the end of Micah 1 where Micah proclaims a series of woes on towns throughout Judah that appears fairly dull in English. But Micah is doing two things here. First, the towns that Micah mentions trace the route of the second Sennacherib would take as his armies or his army would march toward Jerusalem in 701 BC. There's a a route that's being uh, established here. And second, as he's doing this, each woe that he proclaims in Hebrew is a wordplay 
or a pun that's on the name of the town. So we might get a similar flavor in something like, you cannot wash the corruption out of Washington. You see the the wordplay that's there. Or something like, sin is nothing new in New York. So he's being very intentional as he's writing this to, to be memorable in what he is communicating. So sin is intrinsic to people. Right? That's the idea we're getting from this message. To get the full sense of Micah's writing, you might need to read this book with a help of a really good commentary uh, or to have a good introduction, something like you might get in the ESV study Bible or if you're looking for commentaries, a technical commentary may give you a better background to what's going on here. That could be something like um, Tremper Longman wrote a, a commentary on the book of Micah. Definitely recommend that one for you. So what is Micah about? A few ideas. First is that God wants wrongs to be rebuked. God wants wrongs to be rebuked. Micah wants us to know that God wants wrongs to be rebuked. Israel and Judah were marked by sin. They were marked by sin. Micah condemns a host of social and economic sins that include things like covetousness, threat, or theft, fraud, dishonest scales, bribery, deceit, violence, and bloodshed. He also condemns religious sins, including witchcraft, idolatry, an unwillingness to heed the Lord and a desire to listen to false teachers. At the root, this sin is a matter of the heart. In Micah 3.2, he says, you hate the good and love the evil. Israel violated her covenant with God by deliberate apostasy and in the way that she lived out that apostasy. Socially, economically, politically. She treated God's word with disdain. Look at Micah 2, verse 11. It says, If a man comes and utters empty lies, I will preach to you about wine and beer. He would be just the preacher for this people. Picking prophets based on how optimistic their outlook was, was something that they were guilty of. They were looking for people who were giving them a good message with good hope behind it. That's where things had had gone. So God will judge these people. He's going to do so both publicly and severely. In chapter one, verse three, it says, look, the Lord is leaving this place and coming down to trample the heights of the earth. The mountains will melt beneath him and the valleys will split apart like wax near a fire, like water cascading down a mountainside. All this will happen because of Jacob's rebellion and the sins of the house of Israel. What is the rebellion of Jacob? Isn't it Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Isn't it Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap of ruins in the countryside, a planting area for a vineyard. I will roll her stones into the valley and expose her foundations. When God comes, he doesn't come lightly. The earth is crushed beneath him. His judgment is powerful, but it's also personal. 
The wrath isn't some unfortunate consequence of his justice that he's kind of embarrassed about. He delights in showing wrong to be wrong and himself to be right. Let me say it for you again. He delights in showing that wrong is wrong and that he himself is right. So if you're one who puzzles over God's wrath and the idea of hell, let me assure you on the testimony of the passage like this that God's wrath is real. He has a capacity for wrath and is committed to responding to our sin in wrath. How much does God hate sin? Jesus' death shows us the extent to which God was willing to go to in order to deal with it, to deal with sin. As a result, we should take the warnings in the Bible very seriously. This was a real judgment. This wasn't theoretical. This was real judgment to a real group of people that they really had to endure. And so would ours. So no one should be complacent in their faith. No one should be complacent in their walk with the Lord. And one stern warning in the Bible, the stern warnings are there as one of God's gracious means to, pres- or to persevere our faith, to preserve us in our faith, to help us to persevere. So when we see these warnings, we should heed them as gifts from God to continue in our faith. Read Micah as a warning not to play fast and loose with sin. Sin will enslave us. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. That's what John Owen said. It's deadly. So that's the first idea, that God wants wrongs to be rebuked. The second idea is that God wants his people to be restored. God wants his people to be restored. Micah concludes each passage of judgment with a passage of hope for salvation and mercy. That's going to be a pattern that you're going to see throughout this book. Look at Micah 4 right now. Micah 4, verses 6 through 8. Matt Howe, can you read Micah 4, 6 through 8 for us? That day declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make the remnant and those who are cast off a strong nation. The Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. And you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come, the former dominion shall come, kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. Amen. Judgment of sin ends in perfect judgment. The perfect judgment is not just the wrath of God, but the salvation and mercy of God. God is gracious in saving. He's gracious in saving a remnant, a small portion of people to be set apart for his own. For these people, he promises justice, but also mercy. He promises salvation. He promises to restore them to the land with the blessing and presence of the people of God, where those that they bless will be blessed and those that they curse will be cursed. And when his blessing comes, they will indeed be blessed. And when his curse comes, they will indeed be cursed. He He promises to fulfill 
his salvation to these people. And we will see eventually that this, this prophecy in particular is fulfilled by bringing Judah back from their exile in Babylon. But God promises an even more profound salvation. Micah points forward to a final and lasting salvation in the central passage of the book, Micah 5, 1 through 5. There, he promises a ruler in Israel who will come from Bethlehem and stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their their peace. And who is the king? None other than God himself, who becomes man. The Lord Jesus will be king. So that's the second idea, is that God wants his people to be restored. The third is that God wants his character to be known. God wants his character to be known. He judges sin and shows mercy in order, hear that, he judges sin and displays mercy in order to display his character and be glorified and acknowledged by everyone. That's the key at the end, right? He's displaying his glory, his power, his majesty, not just to those that are experiencing the blessing of that, but to everyone. We get to see this in three ways through Micah. The first is in Micah 4, verses 1 through 3. God wants his character to be known through the acknowledgement of his supremacy. That's the first idea, that his, his glory and his character would be made known through his supremacy. Micah 4, 1 through 3. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's house will be established at the top of the mountains and will be raised above the hills. People will stream to it and many nations will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us about his ways so we may walk in his paths for instruction will go out of Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will settle disputes among many peoples and provide arbitration for strong nations that are far away. They will beat their swords into plows and their spears into pruning knives. Nation will not take up the sword against nation, and they will never again train for war. Very interesting because that's also quoted in Isaiah 2, verse 4. Isaiah 2, verse 4. Both Jew and Gentile are going to come up to God's mountain to seek to walk in his paths. And so God's redemptive plan ends with people from all nations acknowledging and rejoicing in his supremacy. That there's no one like him. The second way we get to see God's character known and displayed is through the remembrance of his righteousness. The remembrance of his righteousness. In chapter 6, God recounts his many acts of blessing and salvation toward Israel starting with their deliverance from Egypt and slavery, pointing back to the Exodus. Then he points to the provision of leadership in Moses and Aaron. 
their triumph over their enemies and entrance into the promised land. This is why we talk about redemptive history. There is a long story of God redeeming his people. It's not just a blip. It's a long story in which God has redeemed his people. And we can glorify God and show his character by retelling the story. This is one of the ways that God makes himself known through the remembrance of his redemption, his righteousness. And the last way that we see God's glory displayed through his character is through the demonstration of his mercy. We saw in the previous section how God wants to, his people to be restored and God's restoration goes so far that he even promises to forgive sin. Look at Micah 7, verses 18 through 20. Micah 7, 18 through 20. Who is a God like you, forgiving iniquity and passing over rebellion for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not hold on to his anger forever because he delights in faithful love. He will again have compassion on us. He will vanquish our iniquities. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show loyalty to Jacob and faithful love to Abraham as you swore to our fathers from days long ago. If you think about it, those are perhaps the three big themes that underline the message of the gospel. A God who claims to forgive sin that he might be glorified. If you're looking for a different perspective on the gospel that holds these great truths high, Micah is a great place to start, to see the gospel in the Old Testament. So how do we take hold of these promises? How do we become part of the remnant? We repent of our sin. We repent of our sin and we believe in the Lord God. This is where that verse that's often quoted and maybe misquoted comes from, Micah 6, 8, where Micah says, to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. What's that all contingent upon? Repentance and belief in him. The danger for God's people is that they always presume their inclusion in God's family instead of doing the work of repenting. We, we're forgetful in our repentance. And with that problem in mind, let's turn to Jonah. Jonah 1 through 4. As we start with Jonah, I want to point us to a reference from 2 Kings 14.25. We're able to, in that verse, place the ministry of Jonah during the reign of Jeroboam II, who was king of Israel to the early mid-8th century BC. That timing is significant because Jonah is called to preach to Assyrians. What did the Assyrians do, friends? They annihilated the kingdom. Right? So Jonah is called to preach to the people who would annihilate the people of God. In the mid-8th century BC is just before Israel is invaded by this nation. So at this time, Assyria has been Israel's perpetual enemy for some time. And that's a dynamic that's sitting underneath this book. That's why Jonah shows so much distaste at the idea of preaching to the Ninevites. 
Assyria is Israel's enemy, and Jonah doesn't like the Assyrians, but Jonah's called to preach to them. To make matters worse, it seems like Jonah may have been accustomed to a very different type of prophecy. The reference in 2 Kings 14 has Jonah prophesying, expanding its borders at the time of the expense of its enemies. So how humiliating would it be to now turn and preach to the benefit of those very enemies that they have been taking out? It would feel awkward. Within redemptive history, Jonah is similar to the other minor prophets that we've looked at so far. But what Jonah adds to the story of redemptive history is that Yahweh is God over all the nations, not just the covenant people, and that he saves both Jews and Gentiles. Now these things are, are taught in other books too, but Jonah, in, in Jonah, it's really emphasized. These things are helpful to us. And what helps us see that in all of this, that is the idea that God's wrath on the day of the Lord is in light of God's desire to save. He desires to save and even to save among the Gentile nations. He's a God of grace and mercy. And the book of Jonah shows how positively active he is in saving people and pursuing them with grace, even when they don't know it. So the story of Jonah and the whale is so well known that we often miss that theological point, right? I, I know as we were reading through it in our little story time Bible with Maeve, we had to pause and tell her like, okay, there is a whale, but there's a bigger story. <laughs> this is cool. Yes, we, we know that the picture looks really neat. Um, but I, I actually, side note, had a conversation. We had a church member who worked within like marine biology and uh, I remember asking her what she thought of the whale and Jonah. She's like, well, was it a whale? Yeah, was it a shark? It says it was a fish. <laughs> was it a fish? <laughs> How big was the fish? And she was like, I don't want to give you any of the answers to that. <laughs> but it was a good conversation. Um, so when we think of the, the history of the book of Jonah, a quick note on the history of the book is that there's often the question when people hear this story that are not coming from a Christian perspective, they go, is this real? This is one of the most contested books of, uh, of the Bible within the secular perspective. It's like, well, how could that be real? But it's also one of the most well-known stories within the Christian faith. Right? So it's very interesting that you have those two dynamics, really well-known within Christianity, really well-hated within non-Christian groups. Right? So as often as this is dismissed as parable or fable, because of how fantastic it sounds, we have to see that there, there's nothing like the parables that Jesus tells in the Gospels or the fables of Aesop. It's, a, it's long, an entire book of the Bible, and it's detailed, populated with lifelike characters and set in identifiable historical place and time. So Jonah is not by coincidence. It's not made up. It's significant. And more importantly, Jesus treated the book of Jonah like a historical happening. Often he, he quoted Jonah in the, in the Gospels. So let's step through book, the book chapter by chapter and look for the theme of God's mercy and even more mercy to the Gentiles. So Jonah 1. If you're looking at Jonah 1, chapter 1, 
God calls Jonah to preach to Nineveh. And instead, what does Jonah do? He flees. He boards a vessel headed to Tarshish. God sends a storm. And we should note the contrast between the pagan sailors and Jonah. The pagans fear the wind and the storm and begin praying, and Jonah sleeps. (laughs) Conscience-stricken, the sailors resist throwing Jonah into the sea, while Jonah, volunteering to jump into the raging ocean, is more likely suicidal. The sailors ask God for mercy as they throw Jonah overboard. And then the sailors, it says, feared the Lord exceedingly. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows in 116. In stark contrast to Jonah, who at the beginning of the chapter ran away from the Lord. So who's following the Lord? The Israelite Jonah or these pagan sailors? Irony abounds, and it's a theme that will continue to full maturity in the New Testament book of Acts. The book of Jonah is already telling us that God deals with Gentiles, with the Gentiles, that he is merciful and enabling some of them to fear him, presumably even some to come to know him, and even some to show traits of godliness. So the chapter ends as the sailors throw Jonah overboard and God provided a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And Jonah too. From the inside of the fish, Jonah repents and prays to God. It was a good call by Jonah to repent and pray. (laughs) And as he repents and prays, I want you to note that he praises God from saving him from the drowning even while he is still in the belly of the fish. He's in the belly of the fish and he's praising God for not allowing him to drown. Jonah knows that even if he's going to die in the fish, he must still acknowledge God's goodness and mercy to him. He has been well and truly humbled. In Jonah 2.4, he says, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. Jonah knows that he's been punished, and yet he humbly seeks God's forgiveness. With the voice of thanksgiving, he says, I will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. He even goes to say throughout the book that he is glad of God's mercy. In chapter 3, Jonah fulfills God's commands, and he goes and he preaches to the Ninevites. It's interesting that Jonah only preaches about God's impending judgment. He doesn't explicitly command the Assyrians to repent of their sin, nor does he offer the possibility that judgment could be averted. Yet again, the pagan nations outshine God's prophet and the Assyrians respond immediately. The text is immediately with repentance. And the great people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. This was a massive conversion story. In fact, the king of Assyria, who only heard the message secondhand, it tells us, did the same thing himself in verse 6. He issued a proclamation calling on the people to fast and call out mightily to God and to turn from his evil way and from the violence that was in his hands. Who knows, he says, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. So note the contrast to Jonah. 
He only repented of his sins after God sent a raging storm and caused a fish to swallow him up in, for three days. And yet the Gentile nation of Assyria repents after an unknown foreign preacher comes into the land and preaches a single sermon. Okay. This wasn't a sermons over a period of time. It's a single sermon. And the king of Assyria understands God's mercy better than Jonah himself knows God's mercy. And he's a better example to us of repentance and humility. Then we come to Jonah chapter 4. Jonah 4 is the climax of the book and drives home the book's theological message. So let's look at the first few verses together. Somebody read for me verses 1 through 3. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to plead to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Isn't it amazing that Jonah literally comes out and says that he fled from going to Nineveh because he knew that God would deliver salvation and mercy. He knew that if he went and preached, that Yahweh would spare these people. So he decides, I'm going to go. It is just blatant disregard for God's plan, God's purposes. We often think that he fled because he was scared of the, what the Assyrians could do to him if he approached them. But that's not true. What he was actually scared of was God's mercy. He didn't want the Assyrians to benefit from it. He knew Exodus 34, verse 6, which he quotes here. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. In chapter 2, he rightly humbled himself and accepted God's judgment and mercy. But now in chapter 4, he's reverting to arrogance and trying to decide how God should be merciful to whom he should judge. And God's response is much of the point of the book. No matter how corrupt the Ninevites are, no matter how disobedient Jonah is, no matter any situation with waves, wind, and fish, if Yahweh has his grace set upon something, nothing can stop it. He will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. It's the same thing he says in Exodus. I'll have mercy on whom I will have mercy. So God responds in the form of a living parable and the plant that we see in verses 9 through 11. God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry and angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. And with that, the book ends just right on the dime. The story is meant to show how Jonah and how we often too should be zealous for God's salvation of other people's. To be God's people is to care for the nations the way that he does. 
Jonah reminds us that God cares about all people. There isn't any nation that's outside the pale or beyond God's salvation. Jonah assumed God's covenant was exclusively for one people. His story and his book are great testaments to the universality of God's message. This is the great message of Jonah 3, that God intends his word to spread globally and he will bring people to himself from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And if God cares about all peoples, Christians should too. We should care about all peoples. This is the single most important application point of the book of Jonah. Dever once said this, he said, God has always been more committed to reaching the world than his own people have been. God's always been more committed to reaching the world than his own people have been. We should care about seeing God's word spread through the nations, and that care and concern should translate into evangelism and missions. Jesus commanded his disciples, and that includes you, to go and make <coughs> disciples of all nations. It should be normal for Christians to pray for the growth of the church in other nations. It should be normal for the church and for Christians to give money to support missions in other nations. It should be normal for the church and for Christians to go and help plant churches in other nations, towns, and locations. It should be normal for us to do the work of evangelism and mission. Our work in spreading the gospel is not just here, it's internationally, to the ends of the earth. If we want to reflect God's message and his power and his might, we need to indeed be willing to go beyond the comfort zone. And our fellowship with believers doesn't just include the fellowship that we have here among those that gather in Hebron, but those who profess Christ and proclaim the gospel from here to Moscow and back, from here to Romania, from here to Argentina, from here to anywhere in the earth. So, should we miss the the humbling message of the book of Jonah, too? I'd say no. Who are we? We're not the humble Assyrian king. We are often the reluctant Jonah. We're God's people. We're called to take a message of mercy to those who haven't heard. And we are those who are so slow to go. And we are often those who seem more occupied with our own comfort than God's great plans to show his mercy to the nations. So we should read Jonah with that in mind and allow God to show his power, his might, to humble us and motivate us to go and spread the good news. So we've looked at half of the minor prophets now, guys. Half of them. And I pray that you have been struck by the Lord's holiness, our own sinfulness, and the need that we have for a savior. The Lord is great in mercy, and he provides the way of salvation for us in Christ. Next week, we'll continue looking at three of the minor prophets. Let me pray for us as we go to worship God. Lord, we thank you for the message of the minor prophets. You're a God who is gracious and powerful to redeem. We pray that you would give us faith and obedience, and that we would point others to the good news of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.
here's this week's reading schedule for you. If you want to take a photo of that, go ahead. I'm taking the markers and hiding them. <laughs> How you doing, Gail? Eh? You're here, though. That's good. 